Hello there, and welcome to the Lancet HIV podcast for the July issue. Today, I'm talking to Cherie Schwartz from the Department of Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins University in the USA, and I'm going to be talking to Cherie about a study assessing a safer conception project in South Africa. This prospective cohort study was published recently online and is included in the July issue of the Lancet HIV. Cherie is one of the researchers and authors of the paper. Hi there, Cherie. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us today. So to start with, can you tell us a little bit about how advice on conception for people living with HIV has changed over the course of the epidemic? And what is the situation now for people who wish to conceive when a potential parent has HIV? Yeah, it really has been been quite an evolution over the years, so that's a great question. Perhaps to start, I'll just review the terminology. When when I talk about safer conception, this is really this is really about HIV prevention. And so there are two key goals. One is to prevent HIV transmission between partners when one is living with HIV and one is not. And the other is to prevent HIV transmission to the baby should the woman become pregnant. And, and also there is this, this third goal, I guess, of trying to optimize pre-pregnancy health. Um, you know, when I first started presenting on this, some of the ideas around safer conception and fertility desires of people living with HIV, I was a PhD student back in 2008, 2009. I, I remember presenting at a conference and I actually got yelled at. Uh, I was told that you know, what I was talking about, the science I was discussing was dangerous and it was unethical and, you know, I really shouldn't be putting these sorts of thoughts in in people's minds. And I was really, you know, quite taken aback at the time because it didn't feel like what I was suggesting was so radical. In fact, it felt like, you know, most people, many people in the world want to have children and often um, health issues that we're dealing with don't change those fertility desires. And so, we really have come a long way in the past 10 years, and I like to remind myself that that was really only 10 years ago that that happened. Um, yeah, and I think the the science around it has evolved so much in the last 10 years as well, particularly when you think about what we know about treatment as prevention, and that if someone living with HIV takes treatment, of course, that then prevents transmission um, to their partner, as well as you know promoting their own health and, and longevity. But you know, when we first started thinking in this space, and, and I would say that although these are the old recommendations, they are still what are being practiced um, in many places um, that I work and, and here in the U.S. and I'm guessing in, in the U.K. But really the, the starting point was that if a, if a male partner was living with HIV, that they would use, um, have him ejaculate into a cup just like you would at a fertility clinic, and this in fact would happen at a fertility clinic, and then you would do sperm washing and intrauterine insemination or in vitro fertilization um, into the woman. And if the female partner was living with HIV, um, you know, you would do something similar, but you wouldn't have to do the sperm washing step and you'd use intrauterine insemination or IVF. Um, and, And that really was the practice for many years, and that is still what many people here, many clinicians here will recommend although the science has moved on from that. And, um, you know, now we know within this um, undetectable equals untransmissible world that, you know, if we can get the HIV positive partner um, virally suppressed or if we, can, if we can't get to the positive partner, if we can use pre-exposure prophylaxis with the HIV um, negative partner, that, that those strategies um, I think what Sakamdeni shows is that they really are going to be 
um, enough. But I, I, you know, I would say that despite all of that progress, you know, when we had patients that didn't conceive that we referred to the only public sector fertility clinic in South Africa within, you know, a couple hours, um, even at that clinic, they said, you know, well, you know, we'll see your patients, but they're, they're going to have to, you know, we use sperm washing and IUI and, and IVF. And that's, you know, even in public sector clinic outside of the financial reality for every single one of our participants. So those recommendations are still there, sadly. <laughs> when you say sperm washing, what, what does sperm washing entail? Yeah, so sperm washing is, is actually the process of just as it as it sounds, going through and um, removing the HIV virus uh, from the sperm. Right. So that when um, when the insemination process takes place, um, there is no you know there's no no virus transmitters. No virus in in that sperm. Lots of uh, countries have HIV guidelines that address safer conception in, in some way. Um, but actually you're saying that perhaps these guidelines haven't necessarily caught up with, caught up with the science or even that implementation of these guidelines is, is, is somehow sort of is lagging. And is there any particular reason for, for that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that there are a lot of reasons. Um, you know, I think three big ones would be just the historical legacy of, of stigma and HIV. And, and that, that really being coupled with reproductive rights are often not a priority, um, despite there being a lot of data suggesting that a substantial proportion of the population living with HIV wants to have children, it's still seen as sort of a niche issue, which is kind of surprising to me because there's there are data suggesting that at any given one point, anywhere from, you know, 10 to 50 percent of of you know, couples are considering having a kid in the context of HIV. So it's it's really not a niche issue. But you know, I think it's been really really framed as a, as a women's issue. And, and and this is really a place that I want to push back a little bit because reproduction, fertility, families, those are also a men's health issue. And you know, for all of the men who have undergone you know, fertility treatment and, and, and gone through that whole process, I think that they will tell you that this isn't just a women's health issue. Um, so I think that's that's one of the big reasons. I think, you know, on top of that, even where the guidelines do exist, I think at the at the hospital level, they they aren't being implemented and, and providers, I think in, in countries like the US and the UK are often, I think, a bit more conservative, particularly in the US because, you know, fear of lawsuits. Um, but in in countries like South Africa, Southern Africa, where where I work, you know, I think it's it's really more that healthcare providers don't have the information that they need. They're very busy, very overburdened. Um, you know, the queues at these clinics are extremely long, and you know, healthcare providers are trying to get through what they have to do. You know, what the Department of Health, Ministry of Health donors like PEPFAR, the Global Fund, require them to report on. And I think what, what doesn't fall within that scope, what things that are recommended but not enforced, um, very frequently we see that they don't happen. And I think the third big reason is is that safer conception, it has so many homes that it's nomad. Um, you know, you could it's really an issue related to prevention of mother to child transmission. It's 
reproductive health issue, it's family planning, and it's thought of more comprehensively, it's something for several different couples, it's a way that you can help achieve VUNAIDS 909090 goals. It has so many places where it fits in that I think that it's relevant to all of these things, and yet it doesn't have a single anchor that's really, um, you know, one specific area in this um, in this funding environment that's advocated for it. Yeah, I suppose often when you have these sort of these issues that fall under lots of different, you know, fall into lots of different categories, then who is it who should take responsibility for it is not always clear, and who should be acting on it is not always clear. Exactly, it's always kind of everyone else's problem. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So then, the second Denny Safer Conception Project, which is what you've been, which is what uh, you report on in in the paper in the Lancet HIV. This seems to be one of the first such implementation studies to report outcomes from a sub-Saharan African setting. Could you uh, briefly describe uh, for our listeners what the project is and, uh, and what the package of services offered to participants is? Gladly. So, Sakumdeni means building a family in, in Zulu. This study was set in northern Johannesburg, South Africa, at a primary health clinic serving the informal settlement of Deep Sloot, um, which has a large migrant population in surrounding areas. And for those who are familiar with South Africa, I think we know that South Africa likely likely would know that South Africa is an area of high income inequality. And so while there is a lot of money, there's, there's also a lot of poverty. Nearly 40% of the participants in our study were uh, foreign-born, uh, largely from Zimbabwe. The average household income was about $80 uh, a week. And basically what we offered at Sakam Denny was, a, this was a demonstration project, a standalone dedicated service embedded within this larger comprehensive primary health clinic. And we offered people counseling and risk reduction methods, and then we followed them. So we didn't randomize anyone to anything because we didn't feel like given the state of the evidence that that was ethical, but we wanted to see what methods people chose to what extent they stuck with them, and what happened in terms of the pregnancy outcomes and HIV transmission. So this is very much a real-world setting. And the we started with couples who were serodifferent, meaning one partner was living with HIV and one wasn't, whether that was the man or the woman. Um, we also enrolled couples that were seroconcordant, where both were living with HIV, and then couples in which one partner was living with HIV and the status of the other partner was was unknown. Wherever possible, we tried to enroll people as couples, but we didn't turn away uh, women in particular, I mean, or men, but in this case, it really was just women who came in and said that they couldn't get their partners to come in, but they were interested in reducing risk for themselves and, and onwards to their partner and baby. So the basic package that we offered was uh, HIV counseling and testing for anyone who was negative or unsure of their status. Uh, STI screening and treatment, viral load monitoring for those who are living with HIV, and promotion of methods of contraception until the couple was clinically indicated to conceive. So STIs were cleared, the woman was on folic acid, the partner who was living with HIV was virally suppressed. Uh, those were the sort of things that we were really trying to optimize. And then for each couple, there was that was the basic package, and then there were tailored strategies that were selected by the couple. So we really uh, heavily encouraged anyone living with HIV to start treatment. At the time, we were starting independent of CD4, which was ahead of the guidelines in South Africa. Now those are the guidelines um, 
in most of the world, uh, fortunately. So, so offering that pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV-negative partners who felt concerned even if their partner was on treatment or if their partner refused treatment, offering that as an option, male medical circumcision for HIV-negative men. We taught them about self-insemination with a plastic syringe if the male partner was negative as an option. So teaching them to, um, well, instructing them in, in terms of, you know, if the men ejaculated into a cup, then using a plastic syringe and, and teaching them how to do that insemination process safely. And then training around timed condomless sex. So helping couples to identify when they're most likely to become pregnant, uh, which I would say is, is actually tougher than most people think. I think people in all countries struggle um, <laughs> with finding those dates. Yeah. <laughs> um, so training couples around that and trying to limit condomless sex to those periods. So there's really like a, a broad suite of things to to minimize risk and, and sort of maximize chances of, of achieving a, a, safe, a safe conception. Um, exactly, and it wasn't expected that couples would use all of those strategies. It no. was, you know, they chose for themselves with guidance from a healthcare professional, um, you know, what fit their circumstances and their relationship best. Right, that's great. And so, in in your study, the main outcomes that you were looking for were incidence of pregnancy, HIV transmission to partners or infants, and sort of the uptake of safer conception strategies. Could you? Tell us a little bit about what you found in terms of those outcomes. So, so maybe I'll start with, with the adoption. Um, overall, we found that you know, the majority of individuals living with HIV uh, did want to start treatment. Uh, some didn't, and you know, we've received some questions about, well, why didn't you, know, why didn't you start those people on treatment? Well, you know, their CD4 counts at the time were above the guidelines. We advised it and we offered it. But again, this is about respecting people's choices. Um, PrEP adoption was relatively low, I would say, about one in four HIV-negative individuals chose to use PrEP, um, but again, most of them had partners who were on treatment, and we were working to uh, make sure that they were virally suppressed, so that was you know, a calculated, um, an informed decision that those individuals made, and, and quite truthfully, I, I fully support that. I think the modeling data suggests that PrEP doesn't offer very much additional protection if, uh, or is necessary if the positive partner's on treatment. Um, we found that self-insemination amongst HIV negative men was, was relatively um, well-liked and used. About 62% of the men took that up, which I think was a, a surprise to, to many people. Um, you know, timed condomless sex, about half of the couples used that. In, in terms of pregnancy, of those who, we had relatively good retention in the cohort, about 90% of, of women had at least one follow-up visit. And of those, 30% conceived or had a pregnancy. So, you know, clearly a, a substantial proportion, 70% didn't. Um, however, when you kind of look at it in terms of incidence of pregnancy and pregnancy rates, we found pregnancy rates of 41 per 100 person years, which is very high, higher than what you would see in the data that come out of Southern Africa in terms of those who are trying and not trying combined. Um, so I think that the, the incidence rates um, were relatively high and, and, and what we expected, roughly speaking. Uh, when you look at, you know, we had to have this delay though in terms of 
you know, someone comes to us and then they don't immediately start trying to conceive, right? Because we're trying to optimize all of these health conditions uh-huh. um, before we encourage them to, to start trying. And so on average, it took couples about three and a half months before they were ready to, to start trying. And so if you factor that out, you know, the incidence rates, you know, increased by another 50%, so up to 62 per 100 person years, which is relatively high. Um, the other things that I think were, you know, the big take-home messages is that when couples got pregnant, you know, the majority of them, 99%, had viral loads under 1,000, which is fantastic. And we did not see any transmissions between partners. We were able to um, ascertain 89% of the infant outcomes. Some individuals moved out of the space and we weren't able to see them again. But of those that we did ascertain, uh, we saw no infections to infants. So overall, I think from an HIV transmission perspective, it was a resounding success. Yeah, that really is great. Um, Do you have any information on what happened with people after the study? Did... uh, you know, did people continue taking their uh, meds? Did they can maintain viral suppression, that sort of thing? I don't know if, if if you looked into that. Yeah, we don't have a lot of those data because we didn't have the ethical approval to continue to follow up outcomes. Um, the last time, we did have ethical approval sort of through the, the nine-month mark, and the majority of individuals who were on treatment did, did stay on treatment at our clinic. So I think that... Um, you know, for those who weren't previously on, on treatment before they started, this did seem to be, uh, you know, a launch pad for them to get on treatment, get virally suppressed, and, and stay suppressed. I mean, the other thing I think that was so surprising to us was that half of the, although the majority of people were on treatment when they came to us, half of the participants were not virally suppressed when they started. And so just this idea that treatment alone, you know, it works, but no, there needs to be good adherence. We need to know that, you know, there isn't resistance, that, that couples are responding to treatment. And I think just that assumption that, you know, well, as long as they're in treatment, they're fine. Um, I think that our results really challenge that assumption that, you know, you do actually need to make sure that couples are rightly suppressed before um, before saying that they're they're ready to try. Mm-hmm. And, and I suppose actually this sort of contact around the reproductive health is another avenue whereby you can get people onto treatment for HIV and and get people sort of to appreciate the value of it sort of through this route. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is a highly motivating factor for many women and men. So I think you've already talked a little bit about some of the reasons why why there might have been sort of some slightly unexpected rates of pregnancy, which is one of the questions. So I think we probably don't need to sort of go over that anymore. Um, so I guess now I'll just move on to, uh, you know, a final question here. So what would you say were the major lessons from your study and for future implementation of safer conception programs, particularly in low and middle income countries or elsewhere in South Africa? Yeah, I think I think our major lessons are that, you know, this can work, safer conception as an HIV prevention approach. Um, can be effective. It can be safe for couples. Uh, couples did use the methods. They did adopt strategies. They expressed satisfa- satisfaction with the service. I think that since all of the the rightful and important publicity around U equals U, I've asked myself so many times, is this work still relevant? Do we even need this? Um, and, you know, 
I think that we do. Like I said, when, when people came into our study, about half of them weren't suppressed. And so I don't think we can just assume that everyone is undetectable. And, you know, ensuring that couples are optimizing their health and using that as a way to get people in to test, to get them on treatment, I think is an important prevention opportunity. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's been an effective way of reaching men, which, you know, can be hard to reach from a preventative perspective. Men often wait until they are sick to go to the clinics, unfortunately. So getting them in earlier uh, before they're feeling sick is, is important. Um, I think the other thing that, that I keep thinking about is when I first started in the space in 2009, we were, one of the things we were concerned around with fertility and people trying to conceive was that potentially efavirenz was teratogenic. And there was, there was all of this data that, you know, if women took efavirenz during the first trimester of pregnancy, potentially it caused neural tube defects. And the science moved on from that. We found out that that wasn't the case. But in this interim period, women were receiving very mixed messages from their healthcare providers. I interviewed women who had wanted to become pregnant, told their doctors that they wanted to become pregnant. Um, their doctor said, okay, we'll change you after you get pregnant, got pregnant, and then were encouraged to have a termination of pregnancy because they shouldn't have gotten pregnant on Favarin's. So, you know, that is where a lot of this work started 10 years ago. And now we have this issue of dolutegravir, you know, a new drug that's going to be rolled out in sub-Saharan Africa. It's not, it's not new to um, the world, but it's, it's new to lower and middle income countries. And it's, it's a great drug. It has a fantastic resistance profile. There are so many good things about it, but there is this now, again, this signal again of potentially, um, it potentially could cause neural tube defects. I think mean, there'll be more data coming out later this summer from other studies around that, but it just reminds me about how full circle things are and, and really this need to pay attention to fertility and, and really, um, you know, be preventative and prophylactic in our um, in our response. Um, the other thing I think to just think about as we go forward is that we have a lot of op a lot of answers now, but we still have a lot of unanswered questions. So couples and providers continue to have limited information around how to advise couples or themselves to to get pregnant. And this question of how to integrate these services. This was a demonstration project that was a standalone service within a clinic, but that's not going to be cost effective. So we need to figure out how to integrate services in a way that they really truly are being consistently offered and consistent messages are provided. It needs to be to not just women, but also to men, how to do that, how to bring that counseling and those services to scale. I think there are still many unanswered questions around. Okay. Yeah. I, I think one of the points that sort of you raised there about U equals U and how whether in that environment this sort of work is still necessary. Um, but I think, you know, some of the things we've seen recently with with the studies showing the robustness of the U equals U message is just how few people actually know that and then how fraught people are about sort of, you know, not necessarily fraught, but how concerned people are about that, you know, if you're living with HIV and, and the risks around conception that actually just having that contact where you can explain something like U equals U to a couple who are trying to conceive as part of, of these sorts of strategies and projects and uh, things is, you know, of, of potentially very valuable interaction in terms of the conception and in terms of HIV and treatment as prevent prevention and so on. 
Yes, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree. Our whole approach is really built around U equals U. So I'm certainly, you know, that is, that is our cornerstone as well. But I think what we found is that, you know, you can't just assume the first U, right? And I, I think that's one of the take homes. And, and, and clearly all of the, you know, treatment cascades that, that we're seeing uh, across Sub-Saharan Africa reinforce that, you know, not everyone taking treatment is suppressed. And that's definitely an area that we need to improve. Okay. Well, thanks once again for joining us, Sheree. And um, I'd like to thank the listeners again for their time. And please join us again next month.